who else but Simon? No foul! No foul! They're not going to foul him. It's only right. The ball's in his hands. A milestone victory for Arizona. Simon Says Championship. for 13 years. Toiled as a high school coach in Minnesota. Orange County, California also was a U.S. history teacher at the same time. He just can't survive as a high school coach with five kids. He made a little history tonight, his team. The most amazing run this tournament has ever seen. In 11 days, they beat the three winningest programs in the history of college basketball. And all three were number one seeds. Hello, and thank you for listening to today's episode of the Spider Dribble Podcast. I am your host, Derek Ledoux. On today's episode, I want to discuss how I recently discovered that I am related to the legendary Arizona head coach, Lute Olson. Uh, this has made me think about my experiences with the game of basketball as well, uh, some of the joys that I felt from the game, and also some of the pain and anguish I've had with the game. Uh, occasionally, even to this day, I still have recurring dreams of where I am back in high school basketball practice, and for whatever reason, I can barely move my feet in the dream, I can't catch the ball. I can't do anything. My feet feel like they're in quicksand or whatever. Uh, my coaches are getting on me and all that sort of stuff. I recently heard from another podcaster that podcasts can be a therapy session for the one who's giving the podcast. And it can also be kind of a therapy uh, session for those who are listening to the podcast. And that is kind of what I'm hoping for in today's episode. And by the way, too, I did pretty much write out word for word my thoughts about everything. So this next segment is scripted, but I think it was written in a way that uh, things will make more sense to people that are listening. So sit back and I guess enjoy the next segment, reflect upon it, whatever you'd like to do. It was love at first sight, or maybe love at first touch. I don't know how old I was the first time I touched a basketball, but certainly too young to remember. But once I picked it up, I never put it down again. I knew right away what I was supposed to do with it. Nobody had to tell me. That was obvious. Throw it up in the air. Try to throw it through that hoop. That's it. That's the essence of the game. Shoot the ball through the hoop. I don't know why it captured me so completely, but it was fun. It was a challenge, and it was something I could play by myself or with one friend or with many friends. It's an irresistible game. It's fun to practice and even more fun to play games. Hand a basketball to a five-year-old or a 65-year-old, and if there's a basket nearby, they'll do exactly the same thing. They'll take a shot, and then they'll take another shot. It's a simple game. In fact, it's so simple, 
I've spent my entire life trying to figure it out. That is a quote from legendary Arizona and basketball Hall of Fame head coach Lute Olson in his autobiography. His description of how he fell in love with the game is exactly how I fell in love with the game at a young age. It's how my recently turned two-year-old nephew has fallen in love with the game by picking up a basketball, enjoying the thrill of touching a round leather ball, and attempting to put it into a hoop over and over and over again. I first heard Lute Olson give an interview on, I believe it was a CBS telecast. I was a teenager at the time when the interview first aired. Over the course of the interview, it was mentioned that Coach Olson never used foul language with his players. I couldn't find the original clip, but the following audio clip is from an interview that Lute Olson did with Seth Davis in 2013 that is similar to the original clip I saw as a teenager. In it, he explains why he never used profanity with his players. One of the things I've always appreciated about you is uh, that you yourself did not use profanity and you didn't let your players, you didn't let your coaches. I mean, how'd you win all those games without cussing? No, I, I had one of my players once uh, say that I could say more with my eyes than I could ever say with my mouth. So I just don't believe in cursing. I think it, uh, I, I really think you're, you're not showing respect for people that you're dealing with. And, and uh, the players knew where I stood on that. They, they understood if, if, if they cursed on the court, they were probably going to find uh, uh, the stationary bike on the sideline uh, because we weren't going to, we weren't just weren't going to put up with that. A lot of coaches today and even your age couldn't get through a single sentence without <laughs> dropping F-bombs. I mean, did, did, did you sort of feel like, hey, live and let live? Or did you look at that and, and, and maybe think that that just wasn't proper? No, I think, I think it's up to the individual, but uh, I, I just, think it shows lack of respect for people and and uh, I've never cursed uh, whether it was when I was playing or growing up or whatever the case uh, my family would not have allowed that and and uh, the good thing now is uh, that I see the same thing happening with with our kids and the grandkids so it's uh, I think it was the right thing for me to do uh, and the example that I set, I think, was important to, uh, to the kids. In the next audio clip, Steve Kerr gives a humorous example on how his college coach, Lute Olson, never used foul language. What I, what I remember with Lute and Tom is that you know, Lute never swore, yeah. um, never would curse. Um, and so he had these interesting ways of expressing his displeasure, you know, Judas Priest was one of his favorites. Great band, too. I used to tell him that. Great no band. Yeah. I was talking about. <laughs> but, you know, he had the Midwest accent, too. Yeah. And so, for whatever reason, he, he referred to Tom as Tom Talbert, not Tolbert. T-A-L-L. T-A-L-L. And, and, and he did this thing with his hands. We would always impersonate. And he would get mad at Tom. And, 
Judas Priest, Tom Talbert, and and everybody would just get such a kick out of that, the way he said that, the way he would get angry with you. And the interview I heard with Lute as a teenager made an impression on me. And though I'm far from perfect, not using profanity is something I've strived to emulate in my interactions with others. After hearing this interview, I had always wondered if Lute Olson was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints like I am. Those not of our church refer to us as Mormons. Every time I searched online, is Lute Olson a Mormon? I was met with the answer that no, Lute Olson was not a Mormon. I don't know why, but for a small fleeting moment, I remember looking at Lute's face and hearing what he stood for, and it was almost as if he looked like one of my dad's friends from church, though I really didn't think too much about it at the time. Since hearing this interview, I have always been a fan of Lute Olson. I've had coaches during my youth who at times used foul language. During my senior year of high school, for example, my bishop at my church heard about my frustration with my volleyball coach who used foul language with us and encouraged me to challenge my coach not to use foul language anymore. Heeding this advice, as well as remembering the Lude Olson interview, I challenged my coach not to use foul language with us. Though it was awkward, my coach agreed to this. Though not perfect, my coach made a concerted effort not to swear anymore, and my experience as a volleyball player on that team was much more enjoyable. We even had a cursing jar on that team that he created that year. Years have passed, and I'm 35 years old now. As it turns out, this past month in February of 2021, I found out that Lute Olson is my biological grandfather's first cousin. This means that Lute Olson is biologically my first cousin twice removed. I've learned that genetically, this relationship is similar in the same amount of DNA you share as someone who is your second cousin. So for example, NBA players, Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady, who are second cousins, they share about the same amount of DNA with each other that Lute Olson and myself share, which is kind of cool when you think about it. How did I learn about this relationship? Well, my dad was born out of wedlock in North Dakota. He's always known his biological mother, but had never known about his biological father, who he was. Uh, the next story is a story that I think I remember hearing long ago, but I can't fully confirm the accuracy of it. But supposedly, as a young baby, an acquaintance was watching my dad and his older siblings at their house. Somehow, his grandparents came by, my dad's grandparents came by, and found him lying in the street. His grandparents immediately brought him home with them and later his older siblings. Uh, he was subsequently raised and adopted by his grandparents in North Dakota. His grandmother had remarried a man with the last name Ledoux earlier in her life. Though my dad is not biologically related to this man, he did a tremendous job of raising my father, and to this day, 
my dad considers this man to be his father and decided to take his last name. So my dad considers his grandparents uh, on his mom's side to be uh, his his own parents, his own mom and dad. A few years ago, many of my family members, including my dad, took ancestry DNA tests. The results showed that my dad was closely related to many people in North Dakota that he had never heard of. Through much studying and research, we have basically figured out who his biological father was because of these ancestry DNA tests. My sister has formed friendships with some of these family members. This past summer, one of these family members posted on social media about their family member, Lute Olson, passing away. Curious upon seeing this, my sister did research and discovered that indeed, my dad's biological father's first cousin is Lute Olson. Last month, I was at my brother's house and he mentioned to me, hey, did you hear we're related to Lute Olson? At first, I reacted to this news in similar fashion, uh, in a similar fashion to how Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back when learning of Darth Vader being his father. That can't be, that's impossible. No, I am your father. Search your feelings, you know it to be true. In my head, I was imagining that Lute Olson was probably a super distant relative, like an eighth cousin once removed or something like that. Uh, but my brother said, you know that guy who found out, who, who we found out is dad's father? Well, it turns out that his first cousin is Lute Olson. I didn't quite believe this news at first. So I quickly commenced to do an internet search of Lute's Wikipedia page. The first line on Wikipedia about his early life reads as follows. Lute Olson was born on a farm outside Mayville, North Dakota on September 22, 1934 and is of Norwegian American parentage. Two things already matched up between Lute Olson and my father. Lute was born in North Dakota, just as my dad was years er, years later. Lute is also of Norwegian-American parentage, just like my dad. My own personal ancestry DNA results show that Norwegian is the most prevalent part of my DNA, by the way, too. Lute Olson's Wikipedia page continues to talk about his father, Albert, his mother, Alinda, and his brother, Amos. When I looked at the family tree that was given to me for my dad's biological father's side of the family, all of this information from Lute's Wikipedia page matched up to this family tree perfect. Lute Olson, I discovered, is indeed my first cousin, twice removed. I was later shown an old photograph of Lute Olson's parents seated together on their wedding day. In the same photo, standing right next to Lute Olson's mother, Alinda, is Alinda's sister who happens to biologically be my great-grandmother. 
So my great-grandmother and Lou Dolson's mother are sisters, meaning that Lou Dolson's aunt is my great-grandmother. Also, that his grandparents are my great-great-grandparents. And there are many other cool relationships uh, to think about with that. As a side note, I later discovered, too, that Lou Dolson's grandchildren, who I guess would be my third cousins, are and have been assistant coaches in the WNBA and NBA. Uh, Lute's granddaughter, Julie, uh, who would be my third cousin, uh, currently is an assistant coach with the Phoenix Mercury. She had a very successful high school basketball career in Arizona, I believe, and I could be wrong about this. She's the all-time women's leading scorer there, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, but she... Went on to play at Arizona and, like I said, currently is an assistant coach with the Phoenix Mercury. Uh, her brother, Matt, Matt Brassi, uh, was formerly the head coach of the Rio Grande Valley Vipers in the NBA D-League. I believe he won a conference title with his team there. Later became an assistant coach under Mike D'Antoni. And once D'Antoni left uh, the Rockets, I don't think... He's there anymore, and he's. I think he's looking for a current job in the NBA. But anyways, I haven't met any of these people. I'm sure they do not know me, but that's cool to think about as well. So ever since this discovery, I've been trying to compare ways with which Lou Dolson and myself may be alike. We are both about the same height. Lute is six foot three, and I am six foot four. I'm not sure if my height descends from him, though, as my brother and dad are both 6'6". Hi, this is Derek editing this episode and just wanted to say I made a mistake right here. I meant to say that my mom's dad is 6'6", and my mom's brother is also 6'6". As far as my own dad, my dad is 6 feet tall. And then my brothers, my oldest brother is 6'9", I'm 6'4", my youngest brother is also six foot four, and then I have another brother who is about six foot one or six feet two inches. So just wanted to make those corrections about the mistake I just made in that section. My great great grandpa, or one of my great great grandpas on my mom's side, was also six six. He was a bodyguard for Kaiser Wilhelm and eventually immigrated to America and settled in Milwaukee with in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with his family. Uh, perhaps I get height from both my mom and my dad, but who knows? I wouldn't have noticed it uh, if I hadn't discovered our relation, but Lute Olson has similar facial features as my dad. The way Lute looks when he raises his eyes and the way he smiles both resemble my dad. Uh, most people say, I look similar to my dad as well, too, so not sure if I look like Lou Dolson or not. Uh, another thing we have in common is that both Lou Dolson and myself are and have been uh, school teachers. Lou began his coaching career at the high school level and spent many years there. In his book, Lou Dolson's description of his grandparents, which would be my great-great-grandparents, and also of and also of Norwegian people in general, is very much how my personality is. 
To quote Lute Olson in his book, he says, My grandparents were Nor Norwegian. When they immigrated to America, they looked for a cold climate similar to the one they had come from, basically cold weather and warm-hearted people. They found this on the farms in Mayville, North Dakota. We once traced the genealogy of my family on my mother's side all the way back to the year 872. Uh, his mother, by the way, again, is the, the part of Lute Olson that I'm related to, but uh, again, he says, we once traced the genealogy of my family on my mother's side all the way back to the year 872. And then he says, appropriately, as I'm well known among basketball fans for my seemingly immovable, perfectly groomed full head of gray white hair, we can trace our lineage to King Harold the Fair-Haired. Uh, just as a quick aside, I am jealous, I'm personally jealous of Lute Olson's hair as I was not blessed by the same hair gene, uh, as my hair has receded a, in a similar fashion to uh, the way that LeBron James has. Not, it doesn't look the same, but my hair has receded just as LeBron James's hair has receded. Uh, but going back to Lute's quote, this next part is a perfect description of my personality. He says, quote, Norwegians are strong, stoic, hardworking people. We accept life as it comes to us, even when it gets hard, and usually we do it without complaint or great displays of emotion. That's probably an accurate description of my personality. End quote. So his description of Norwegians is an accurate description of my personality as well. As a person with strong Norwegian descent, I'm also a strong, stoic, and hardworking person. There are times when people have trouble reading me uh, because I don't always show a lot of emotion. Occasionally, I still do blue-collar factory work as a part-time job. To me, personally, there's nothing wrong with good old-fashioned manual labor like that. Recently, at a work site, a fellow employee asked me, Do you ever get tired? I responded by saying, yeah, I get tired, but I just try to tough it out. This isn't to say that I'm perfect or that I have zero weaknesses, as I certainly have plenty, but I feel like I've been able to endure through some of my weaknesses with hard work. Another thing I've discovered about my biological grandfather's side of the family are the number of athletes, including my dad's biological first cousin, who I discovered had played hockey at the University of Wisconsin. My siblings and I are also fairly athletic. Many of us played sports growing up. My sisters played high school basketball. A few of my brothers played football. My younger brother played tight end at a small college in Virginia. My older brother is six foot nine and made BYU's football team. His goal is to be a tight end, but the coaching staff at BYU wanted him to be an offensive lineman by getting big and fat, uh, by eating at buffets and so forth. My brother had no interest in doing this, so he decided not to, pursue, not to pursue a college football career at BYU. Of course, the big discovery about the athletic genes in this side of the family is finding out that I'm related to a Hall of Fame NCAA head coach in Lute Olson. What struck me about him 
is how he fell in love with the game at a young age, as I did. Going back to the quote about how Loot fell in love with the game at the first touch of shooting a basketball, I also fell in love with the game of basketball at an early age, which is what I want to discuss now. How did you, the listener, fall in love with the game of basketball? I posed this question on Twitter, and user at Ewing and Oz, who is an excellent follow, and though we sometimes disagree on sports or on politics, he always has an interesting and honest perspective of the game and about life that make me think. So I've always liked uh, Ewing and Oz, and he's a great follow on Twitter, so go ahead and follow him. But he at Ewing and Oz, responded to my question of how did you fall in love with the game of basketball by posting a picture of a Little Tykes basketball hoop, which is similar to how my two-year-old nephew right now is falling in love with the game of basketball. He recently got a Little Tykes basketball hoop uh, for Christmas, and the first hour upon getting a Little Tykes basketball hoop, I I'm telling you, he shot the ball over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, he knew exactly what to do with the ball, as Lou Olson suggested. Um, so that's how my nephew, my two-year-old, my recently turned two-year-old nephew is falling in love with the game right now. Uh, I was just over at their house yesterday, and he still begs me to play basketball with him every time I come over. And... It's similar to how I fell in love with the game, and it's similar to how Lute Olson fell in love with the game, as well as he mentions at the beginning of his book. Uh, so, so how did I fall in love with the game? As far as I can remember, and before I ever became a fan of the NBA, I fell in love with the sport by the joy I felt in holding a round ball and trying to hold it through a round hoop. The year was. 1992 or 1993, can't remember which one it was. I was seven years old at the time and in first grade. Some other classmates of mine were shooting on a short hoop in our elementary school gym. I watched and mimicked my classmates as they attempted to shoot a jump shot by pushing a ball outwardly from their chest, similar to what a chest pass looks like. So they were attempting to shoot a basket at the school gym by uh, by throwing a ball at the hoop in what looks like a chess pass. Shortly thereafter, my older brother was watching me attempt to shoot a basket through our kid's hoop in our old and dingy, probably about 100-year-old barn house basement. Upon seeing me attempt to shoot a ball from my chest, my brother immediately corrected my form I think he told me, as older brothers sometimes do, that I was shooting the ball like a girl, if I can remember that correctly. Uh, but anyways, he told me to shoot from right above the right side of my forehead, since I was right-handed, and follow through with the ball. I fell in love with this motion and sensation, and over the course of the next few years became obsessed with playing and watching the game of basketball. That winter, in my first grade year, I became a huge fan of the Phoenix Suns, as my brother mentioned that Danny Ainge, a Mormon like us, was a member of the Suns. 
I fell in love with the Bursting Sun logo that is on their uniforms, which which the legend Tom O'Grady created. Uh, but that Suns team had players like Danny Ainge, Charles Barkley, Tom Chambers, KJ, Kevin Johnson, Dan Marley, Richard Dumas, and others who were on that 1993 Phoenix Suns team. One of the most uh, fun teams to follow in NBA history, even though they didn't win the championship. So that year, my heart was broken as they lost in six games in the NBA Finals to Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, who at that time won their third straight NBA title. It wasn't until a few years later when the Bucks won the draft lottery and selected the big dog, Glenn Robinson, that I became a fan of the hometown team, Milwaukee Bucks. As a second grader, a year after discovering my love of basketball, I wrote a short essay in my class titled My Basketball Career, in which I described in detail how I would go on to make the NBA and one day become a free agent, which meant, as I wrote in my essay, that I could go to any team that I wanted. My teacher, Mrs. Binder, was so impressed at not only what I wrote, but also that I had used correct punctuation and subsequently submitted and published my piece in our school's book of literature for that year, uh, which was called The Echoes Book. My parents signed me up for all sorts of basketball camps. My favorite was the high school's ball handling club in which the school's varsity coach, Tim Hoffensberger, taught many of us youngers the foundational ball handling and basketball skills. It is where I learned how to perform the spider dribble, which is obviously the name of this podcast. If you haven't heard of or seen the spider dribble, it is where a player dribbles between their legs with two quick dribbles in front, then two quick dribbles behind your back while still between the legs. This motion repeats quickly and over and over again, and when you do it real fast, makes it look like, uh, or makes it look as if the ball handler has arms that look like a spider, hence the name the spider dribble. I loved the way Coach Hoffensberger, who was an elementary school teacher, made the camp fun and enjoyable for all of us. He taught us to have fun and love the game of basketball. Over the next few years, I annoyed my parents and six siblings by constantly pounding the ball throughout the house. Lou Dolson mentions in his book that his mother also got mad when he and his brother played ball in the house. Uh, to quote Lute in his book, he says, at night, my brother Marv and I would play in our bedroom. We made a round basket out of coat hangers and hung it over the door. Our room was on the second floor, and we'd close the door, roll up a couple of pairs of socks, and play horse. We usually got away with it as long as we only took set shots. That was the basic shot of the time. You keep your feet planted on the ground. But as soon as one of us took a jump shot, boom, the whole house shook. 
And the next thing we heard was mom coming upstairs pretty fast and pretty angry, warning us we'd better stop playing and get to bed. And that is the end of his quote there. Going back to my experience growing up in Wisconsin, I practiced basketball a ton over the next few years. We didn't have a ton of money as a family, so we rented a farmhouse out in the country. Our house was surrounded by barns, though we didn't raise animals or put the barns to any use, other than our landlord neighbors who raised pigs in one of the barns. My dad, however, did hang up a new basketball hoop on one of the barns, which is where I spent hours in the summer shooting over and over again. My dribbling surface was a dirt gravel driveway. If you've seen the movie Hoosiers, the opening scenes of the movie with kids shooting buckets on their barnyard hoops is similar to what my basketball setup was like at that house. Over the next few years, I participated in different basketball programs. I even won our city's shoot, dribble, and pass competition against other students my age. I remember them announcing me the winner of this event at my school. When I was in fourth grade, my dad signed me up for the fifth grade basketball team since there wasn't a team for fourth graders. I held my own against these fifth graders. I remember in my first game scoring seven points, which wasn't bad for a fourth grader playing fifth grade basketball at that time. One of my later coaches would tell me that I had perfect form on my shot. A few years later, a coach chewed me out in practice because he said that when I saw you in fifth grade, you had perfect form on your shot. Are you practicing? What's going on? You know, he's he's sort of mad at all of that. As the years went on, I became one of the tallest kids in my grade. As a result, my coaches decided that my position had to be in the post. This resulted in me standing back or standing on the block near the hoop the entire time, which resulted in the shorter guards on the team rarely passing me the ball into the post. They would hog the ball for almost the entire game. It's similar to the feeling of if you've ever played pickup basketball and there's that one annoying player who hogs the ball the entire time and rarely passes it to anyone else. I hated having to play in the post. I always wanted to handle the ball on the perimeter and felt like I was just as good at handling the ball as many of the guards I played with. My dad always encouraged me to be aggressive and take the ball to the hoop when I received it. As a result, during the rare times I would receive the ball, I almost always went to the rim to score. One time, my dad told me that he planned on telling the coach to move me to the guard position since none of the other guards on my team seemed to know how to handle the ball well or make good decisions. I told my dad not to do this since I feared the coach being mad at me. He respected my wishes and didn't do so, though at times now I sort of wish I would have let him do so. I always felt like I was a good passer for a big man too. Whenever I'd catch the ball near the elbow, I could often make pinpoint passes to players cutting near the hoop. I remember one play where I caught a pass at the half-court center circle in our press break offense, 
and throwing a pass to a cutting player near the hoop on a dime as this player was covered by his defender. I remember that being one of the cool passes that I made. This this isn't to say that I always made great decisions with the ball. As with many young players, there were times my coaches told me I needed to slow my mind down so that I wouldn't rush a pass that resulted in a turnover. I had one teammate who would constantly tell me not to force shots at the hoop, but hey, I felt like that if this player wasn't going to pass me the ball much during the game, that when I got the ball, I was going to attack the hoop, whether I succeeded or not. At times, I'd even try to be like Giannis before I knew who he was, and off of a rebound would try to take the ball coast to coast to the basket. Sometimes it would result in me foolishly trying to go through defenders and turning the ball over. At other times, I was successful in my one-man fast break attempts and made great finishes at the hoop. My coaches would get so mad at me for my decision making. I always felt like I could shoot the three as well as anyone on my team I remember near the end of one game, with about a minute to go in the game, our team was down by about 9 or 10 points. I decided to take matters into my own hands by attempting a 3. My coach got so mad, pulled me out of the game, and told me, you need to stick to your position. I honestly didn't care, though. My view was that if my teammates weren't going to get it done, that I had the confidence to hit those shots and get us back in the game. One of my coaches told me growing up that I had about as much talent as anyone in my grade, but I needed to learn how to correctly play the game. This was probably my biggest weakness growing up, was learning how to mentally play the game of basketball. I felt completely humiliated when in seventh grade, one of my friends told me that my sixth grade football coach said that I was a little slow. These words resulted in a stigma that I felt for a long time. Throughout my middle school years, I still loved the game of basketball. I still had dreams of playing college basketball someday. However, my love of going to practice, traveling every weekend to tournaments around the state, and especially my frustration with playing in the post and rarely receiving the ball led me to grow fatigued with the game. Being one of the tallest kids, I was also very skinny and still had years before I would completely fill out in my body. Currently, at age 35, I'm 6'4 and 235 pounds. My skinniness as a youngster, though, resulted in me being outmuscled by kids who had already filled out and basically reached their maximum height by that age. I remember in eighth grade being completely outmuscled down low by one of these kids. The competitive fire in me wasn't going to take it, though. If he was going to completely outmuscle me, then at the very least, I was going to make him feel me. Every time he caught the ball, I made sure to get really physical and aggressive with him to the point where I was probably playing dirty. After a few quarters of this, the kid got right in my face with his arms stretched out and yelled, Do you want to go? Encouraging me to get in a fight with him. This was probably the closest I came to getting into a physical 
confrontation. One of the parents from the opposing team stood up and loudly cheered when I fouled out of that game, to which I mockingly clapped my hands and cheered right back at this fan. Throughout my younger years of playing basketball, I had some coaches who really believed in my ability and thought I had a lot of potential. I also had other coaches who didn't have much confidence in me and gave me fewer opportunities than shorter but stocky players who I felt like didn't have much of a have much future potential at the varsity level. The ones who showed their their confidence in me are the ones who I played my best basketball for and who I would further develop my game under. Maybe this is just me, but I'm always amazed at youth coaches who are so concerned with winning basketball games. Like, yes, the object of the game is to win, but one would think that at the elementary and middle school level, if you notice that one of the taller players on your team had a brother, as I did, who was six feet eight inches tall coming to my games, you might think that these coaches might want to prioritize developing that kid over some midget guard or undersized but already stocky big who probably wouldn't grow much more and who probably didn't have much potential in the long run. This is how many, not all, I had some good coaches too, but many Nina youth basketball coaches operated under at the time I was there. My ninth grade coach, Tony White, was one of the better coaches that I had. He routinely expressed how much potential he thought I had to make an impact on the varsity program. He gave me the nickname Mutumbo after the great NBA center, defensive center Dikembe Mutumbo because of my height and especially for my defensive ability. I remember that year he used to bounce a ball on the ground and have some of us try to jam it through the hoop. I remember in one practice, as he bounced the ball in the air, I went up and just mistimed the ball. However, I got my elbows above the rim, caught the rim with my hands, but unfortunately my body went sideways and I landed on both my wrists. Subsequently, I missed the next few days of practice. Despite this, my coach gave word to the varsity coach, Scott Anderson, who, by the way, now coaches at Stevens Point High School or SPASH and has won, I believe he's won a state title or two, uh, having coached the likes of Sam and Joey Hauser, the Hauser brothers who went on to play at Marquette. I think one of them plays at Virginia, another at Michigan State now. But anyways, uh, he coached those guys. His own son, Trev Anderson, is currently a guard with the Wisconsin Badgers. Anyways, my coach gave word to the varsity coach, Scott Anderson, about my attempted dunk in practice as well as my overall play that year. And I remember Coach Anderson often stopping me in the hallways, checking on me and checking to make sure I was doing what I needed to in order to improve my game. That year, my ninth grade coach, Coach White, nominated me to the local newspaper to be an unsung hero or unsung athlete of the week. And I had a short blurb written about me in the local newspaper. 
I recently posted this article on Twitter as I was preparing for this podcast episode. My intent wasn't to say that I was this great, amazing basketball phenom like LeBron James was and being on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was 17 years old, but rather to say, hey, this was back when I sort of still had potential in basketball. Most people who liked and commented on my Twitter posts were positive and complimentary. There was one user who, I'm not entirely sure if he was sincere or not, asked me how the rest of my high school career went, how many points I averaged. I felt like this Twitter user was thinking that I was trying to show off or make a name for myself or whatever, and as a result, I felt like he was maybe trying to tear me down. Maybe I'm wrong and he was sincere in his questioning, but I responded to him that this photo was tragically the last year I played organized basketball and was planning to podcast on my experiences. He responded with, how many PPGs did you average? To which I responded, I don't know, not many. Keep in mind that I was still, as the article hinted at, a tall six foot three inch kid who was growing into my body. Not to compare myself to Giannis, but it even takes players like Giannis who were tall, lanky, and very skinny kids to grow in their bodies. Giannis didn't average many points for his teams in Greece either. I remember hearing a story from former NBA player Thurl Bailey, who recounted his struggles early on in his high school career too. This is not to suggest that I had any sort of NBA potential, not saying that at all, but just to express that it can take taller, skinny players longer to develop. Our team was also playing a slow-paced offense, basically a version of the swing offense which Bo Ryan and the Badgers ran. No one on that team that I can recall, I don't know, maybe, maybe someone did on that team, really averaged many points uh, per game on that team. Maybe some probably averaged more than others, though. Also, I don't think fans always appreciate the assigned roles in which players play, even at the high school level. It's true that scoring can be a big indicator of basketball talent, but it's only if you average the PPGs that people seem to appreciate you. So for the Twitter user responding to my post, I'm sorry to disappoint that 20 years ago or whatever it was that I didn't put up more points during my freshman year of high school basketball. Sorry. Legendary Wisconsin head coach Dick Bennett had an excellent quote too in this audio clip about how players at the high school level can be great servants to their teams. To read a great book, you're going to have to learn how to write a sentence, maybe construct a paragraph, learn how to spell properly. You don't go from that to reading a great book. And you don't go from grade school basketball, AAU basketball, to playing like the NBA. I watched Miami last night and checked into the hotel. They were on TV. Those guys do things the wrong way and make it look good. But you can't do that. I watched LeBron catch the ball in one hand 
most of the time. I watch people put their head down and go to the basket because they're so explosive they can do it. Now, I'm not taking anything away from the NBA players. They're perhaps the greatest athletes in the world. But what has happened, in my opinion, is we've lost, we'll lose most of you by the time you're in high school. We're going to lose you from the grade game. When I coached high school ball, everybody wanted to be on the team. Everybody thought it was really important to be a part of that. And in those days, we had to learn our ABCs on the floor. We're going to do some of those out here with the kids. Just some simple things, just have some fun. We had to learn our ABCs. We had to learn to use our feet. We had to learn to see with our eyes. But so much of that is lost when you just go out and play. And what will happen is, geez, I, I, can't, I can't keep up with these guys as you get older. And so the interest is lost and people don't play. And I think how many kids who could contribute to teams, who could be real servants on a team, we've lost because they don't get to play. They're not good enough to be on the AAU teams that are picked. Or they've played too many games and had not enough practice. They haven't learned fundamentals. They haven't done their ABCs season basketball. That's what I'm seeing, and it scares me, and it bothers me, because I have grandkids whom I would love to see play the game. I want to see them learn to play properly. To add to what Coach Bennett said, too, one major way that players will get noticed in my opinion, by college recruiters, even if they don't necessarily average a ton of points, is if they play the game the right way. As an example, Lute Olson mentions how he discovered Steve Kerr in this clip. I'd get in uh, the gyms very early and stay very late. And and uh, sometimes it, you know, people would say, well, who are you watching in this game? Well, I don't know. You know, there may be somebody that that uh, hits with me and, and uh, uh, that, I, that I'd like to have in our program. So uh, I, I spend a lot of time in gyms and um, a lot of time watching kids. And, and I think uh, it paid off because like in Steve Kerr's case, uh, you know, he didn't have any other scholarships. Well, Tulsa, I was going to ask you about Steve, but as long as you brought him up, I mean, really one of the most remarkable stories um, of your tenure. Yeah. Tell me how you found him, and, and did you have any idea? Well, the the interesting thing, I was uh, watching games at Long Beach State uh, in the summer league, and uh, I was there to watch another kid, actually. And when I uh, watched that next game, I thought, you know, that kid uh, really makes some good decisions and handles himself well, well on the court. So I went down, inter introduced myself to his uh, uh, spring league, summer league coach, and he'd already graduated from high school. I just felt like he was a guy that I came in early the next day, watched him shoot. He shot the ball really well. and. And, but I, what I liked about him is he just didn't make mistakes. And, and that continued with him. Of course, you know, a kid that 
had only one scholarship offer, and then he ends up 15 years in the pros and, and five championship rings. Uh, but he's a perfect example of what I'm saying, that if you recruit good people, it's amazing what they'll accomplish. Now, I'm not sure if Steve Kerr averaged a ton of points or not during his high school career, but Coach Olson did indicate that Kerr's decision-making is what really stood out about him during the time that he saw him at this event. My point is in all this is that playing the game the right way is usually the best course of action to further your basketball career. So as my ninth grade basketball year concluded, I played probably my best basketball to that point on my traveling basketball team. Uh, The game was starting to make more sense to me. Even while playing the five position, I was starting to score more points and having an impact on my team. My defensive play was probably at an all-time level for me too as I was starting to shut down opposing bigs. I remember one game having a double-digit scoring game in the middle of the third quarter, and somehow the scorer's table messed up my foul situation, and they gave me my fifth foul to foul out of that game. My coach at that time ended up going ballistic on the scorer's table. I had one coach who saw me play over the summer tell me that if I started lifting weights, that I was going to dominate in the paint down low. I had many people that year tell me over and over again to hit the weight room. I probably should have listened to their advice. My problem was that even when I went to the weight room, I had no idea what I was doing when I got there. I also didn't have a car to really get there very often either, though I know my parents would have gotten me there had I really insisted. The other big thing, too, was that I was a very shy person and never really felt like I fit in with the players on my basketball teams growing up. This isn't to say that I didn't get along with my teammates, but rather, I never developed a super close bond with many of them either, which probably hindered the chemistry I was able to develop with them on the court. One of my college friends years later told me that he believes that one of the most important things about basketball is developing a close relationship with your teammates off the court. This was probably true for me and probably contributed in hindering my development as a player somewhat. Heading into my sophomore year, I picked up a new sport, volleyball, which I would end up playing over my final three years of high school and for the most part had many great experiences with. My JV volleyball coach, Glenn Schneider, was someone who instantly believed in me as a player and and instilled confidence in me. He helped me develop into a solid middle hitter as I was the tallest kid on the team standing up six feet four inches tall and helped me set a JV school record at the time for most block kills in a season. For whatever reason, some of the players on the varsity volleyball team didn't have much respect for me. Over the course of the next months, they gave me a derogatory nickname, which I wish not to share on this podcast. On one particular night, our team traveled over an hour away to play at Manitowoc. On the bus ride home, 
a group of varsity players who had continually bullied me decided to haze my teammate and I by dumping chocolate pudding all over us while we were still in full uniform. I was not amused by this. When I came home that night, my grandma, who we called Nana, was sitting at the kitchen table and asked how I was doing. I responded, great, in a sarcastic way and immediately went to my room and to bed for the night. This was not a common response by me as I always chatted with Nana when I came home. We shared a special bond with each other. Unfortunately, my sarcastic words of great were the last words I ever shared with her as she passed away the next morning. I hope she knows how much I loved her and that I'm sorry I didn't take the time to chat with her that evening. As the volleyball season concluded, basketball season was right around the corner. The head basketball coach of the JV team was a man that I did not have much respect for. He had previously coached my older brother and had been a jerk to him in the past. My freshman year of high school, I had played on the freshman football team. Then after a few weeks, I knew it wasn't for me. I decided to let the freshman football coach know that I decided not to play anymore that year. The JV basketball coach who happened to be in the locker room and overheard me talking to my coach, he immediately berated me and made me feel very little of myself. Going into my JV basketball season, the same coach started off the season by telling the team that he's not our friend and certainly acted like it during that first week of practice. There are some players and people in society who probably respond well to this type of coaching and believe we need more of it to toughen us up. I am not one of those people. I respond well to coaches who show a belief in me and instill confidence in me. This doesn't mean that they have to be all buddy-buddy with me or, or that they can't get on me during practice, but I at least need to know that they care about me and believe in me in order to respond and perform well for them. I immediately felt like this JV coach did not have much respect for me as a player or as a person uh, because of our past history, because of the past history with my brother and so forth. He kept about 18 kids on his team that season. Going into our first scrimmage, he played me like he played me with the third string players. I felt like I was a much better player than that. The next day, whether I was right or wrong in my decision, I decided that I had had enough of this coach and decided I was done with this team. I didn't come to speak to this coach after the way he had belittled me as a human being in the past. The varsity coach, Scott Anderson, who had shown much faith in me, tried to find out why I was quitting. I didn't really give him much of a response at the time, and that was that. The following basketball season in my junior year, I had missed playing the game and decided to randomly go out for the varsity team. Coach Anderson looked surprised that I was there, 
I felt like I'd played sort of average over that first week of practice in tryouts. Normally, before a basketball season started, I would buy a new pair of basketball shoes. My parents didn't have a ton of money at the time, though, and I knew that had I had asked, they would probably have bought me a new pair because they loved me. I decided to wait and see if I would make the team before asking them for a new pair of shoes. This decision ended up being disastrous as the pair I had been wearing caused me to slip and slide all over the place. I constantly had to wipe off my shoes during those tryouts. I was still very skinny at the time too and had not put on much weight. I did have my moments in that tryout though in a three-on-two, two-on-one drill, I remember stealing the ball at the top of the key as an on-ball defender against one of the starting guards for that varsity team that year. I remember Coach Anderson yelling, all right, Derek, keep going, finish it off. As, as that steal turned into a two-on-one situation, I remember the defender converging onto me as I attacked the basket, I decided to commit a Cardinal high school basketball sin of throwing a behind-the-back pass to my teammate in transition. The ball missed behind him, and I pretty much knew how my tryout was going to turn out. This situation reminded me of the movie Hoop Dreams, where William Gates, who had come off of an injury, tried to throw a shovel pass in transition to one of his teammates, to which his coach Coach Gene Pingator berated William for his decision-making. Most high school basketball coaches demand that the game be played with perfect fundamental soundness, catch the ball with two hands, pass the ball with two hands. Well, as it turned out, as tryouts concluded, Coach Anderson pulled me into his office and told me the awful news. I had not made the team. Being cut from a basketball team is humiliating for anyone. Imagine being six feet four inches though and not making your high school basketball team. My self-confidence was about as low as it had ever been. My previous semesters in high school, I had been an A and B student in most of my classes. The semester I was cut from the basketball team though, I remember getting a C minus in a math class and barely passing my chemistry class by achieving a D minus. Despite my struggles at the time, I don't blame Coach Anderson for cutting me. He is a great man who has gone on to have a Hall of Fame coaching career in the state of Wisconsin. Like I said, he became the head coach of both Hauser brothers who went on to play at Marquette, and his son Trev has gone on to have a successful career with the University of Wisconsin basketball team. Coach Anderson would still occasionally stop to see how I was doing, including randomly coming up and chatting with me at a local store I was working at a few years later. 
he is a sincere individual and I feel very, I think very highly of him. Perhaps I just wasn't good enough at that time, but I believe my decision to quit the JV team the previous year was a big factor in his decision to cut me. If you ask me though, I feel even to this day that I still had a lot of potential as a player and could have made an impact on that team. Maybe that's just me being foolish in my thinking, but I really do believe that. The following summer, I remember playing in a pickup game at the high school and a janitor noticed me playing. Not knowing my history with the school's basketball program, he immediately came up to me after that scrimmage and said, holy SH whatever, like Lou Dolson, I'm a person that tries not to swear, but he says, holy, you can play. Do you play on the varsity team? After responding no, he replied, well, I'm good friends with Scott Anderson and I'm going to his office right now to tell him about you. My senior year of high school, this janitor constantly pestered me in the hallway to play for the basketball team. I even saw him one day talking to Coach Anderson and the JV coach and pointing me out. It mainly just made me laugh at the whole situation. Fortunately, I was able to rebound from the trial of my high school basketball experience and move forward with my life. My senior year of high school, I played my last year of high school volleyball. I was a solid contributor to that team, wasn't the best player, but not the worst either. My real success came in choir, which I had been involved in every year for the past six years. During this last year of high school, my choir teacher, Mr. Oxley, challenged the class to sing a solo for the solo ensemble competition. I had never considered myself a great singer at the time and thought that solos were for more talented students. I just never viewed myself with the upper echelon of students who could do those things. Mr. Oxley's speech really spoke to my heart, though. He said that some of you may never know how talented you are if you don't try this. I decided to give it a try. Despite my doubts about singing solos, I always thought I sounded okay singing in the bathroom when no one else was home. So what did I have to lose? I immediately found out that I was pretty good at it. My teacher, my mom, everyone at church was amazed at how well I could sing. Over the years, I've been asked and begged by church leaders to sing at church events. As far as the solo ensemble competition that year, I ended up going to state and received a perfect score at state. I'm not sure where my singing voice comes from or if it's just something I developed on my own. Lute Olson mentions in his book, though, that he also could sing and performed in choirs, and it is where he met his wife, Bobby. Through research and reading obituaries, I've discovered that other family members in the side of the family were also musically talented. This isn't to knock my mom's dad either, who was a piano tuner for a living. 
he was a person who couldn't really read sheet music all that well, but played everything amazingly by ear. I went on to serve a two-year mission for my church in the Boise, Idaho area, which was probably the best experience of my life, serving and helping other people and teaching them about Jesus Christ. I went on to graduate from college with a degree in elementary education. I went on to teach several years in inner city Milwaukee. This past year, I moved to Utah to be close to my family and currently am searching for a teaching job out here. Finding out that my grandpa's first cousin, my biological grandpa's first cousin, is Lou Olson has caused me to wonder if my basketball career would have gone any differently had I or my coaches known this information at the time. I do feel like it possibly could have made a difference, especially for my six foot nine inch older brother. To make a long story short, he decided not to play basketball his final two years of high school either, though did make the team both years. He was a fairly skinny kid in high school too. As far as his basketball talent was concerned, I remember in an AAU game in Milwaukee, he held his own pretty well guarding highly touted recruit Corey McGetty, who was from Illinois. I always felt that my brother was just as good, and if not better than Dave Mader, who was the six foot ten inch player from nearby Appleton East High School at the time, Mader would end up playing for the University of Wisconsin. Upon graduating high school, my brother hit the weights hard and grew to be six feet nine inches tall and between 250 and 275 pounds of pure muscle. He has pretty much dominated in every single pickup game I've seen since then. He's pretty much led every local league team he's been on to championships by averaging around 30 points per game. He's now gone on to become a successful fitness instructor. I'm not sure what it was in high school with him, but the Nina basketball program did not believe in him at the time. Had he gone to almost any other high school, I believe the story would have been different. Had people known of his relation to Lude Olson, would things have been different? I don't know, but I believe it could have. Coincidentally, Lude Olson traveled to Appleton to see six foot eleven inch Brian Butch play a few years after my brother had graduated. Though my brother decided not to play varsity basketball because of the lack of belief from high school coaches, my brother still received offers from around the state from some smaller Division three programs. There's really no doubt in my mind, though, that he could have and should have played Division one college basketball. A lot of people believe that if there's a good player, a scout will find them. Going back to Steve Kerr, though, had Lute Olson not shown up to scout at the gym in California, would Steve Kerr have been discovered? I would guess probably not. Lute also mentioned that he was shocked that no one else in the country had really picked up on Gilbert Arenas when he discovered him. Gilbert Arenas. Gilbert um, was just an unbelievable athlete. 
and we were fortunate that his dad made him go to summer school between his uh, junior and senior year, so he wasn't playing on these traveling teams because if other people had seen him, why uh, we might not have gotten him. But uh, well, I'll tell you, he could defend. Uh, he could take the ball to the hole. He, he shot the ball pretty well from outside. It makes me wonder how many great prospects there are who never get discovered because of circumstance. My youngest brother is six feet four inches tall and was a talented tight end who ended up receiving all-conference honorable mention in high school. Looking to the near side, he's going to fire along. Ledoux is wide open on the play fake, catches it at the 10, the 5, the end zone, touchdown. Unfortunately for him, he played on a last-place team with a quarterback who had rich parents and contributed a ton of money to the booster program. But this quarterback could barely throw a football or complete a pass. Had my brother been in a better situation, could he have flourished and gone on to get better football offers than the ones he received? I suppose we'll never know the answers to these questions. What matters is that we have a belief in ourselves and in our abilities and that we do the best that we can moving forward. Sometimes learning about and knowing where we descend from helps us to realize the potential and capability we might possess. As an example, in one of the scriptures we use as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, an account is given of a vision Moses received in seeing the creation of the world when he saw the Lord in the burning bush. After this vision, Satan tries to tempt him by saying, Moses, son of man, worship me. In the very next verse, it says that Moses looked upon Satan and said, Who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God, in the similitude of his only begotten. And where is thy glory that I should worship thee? For behold, I could not look upon God, except his glory should come upon me, and I were transfigured before him. But I can look upon thee in the natural man. Where is thy glory? For it is darkness unto me. And I can judge between thee and God. For God said unto me, Worship God, for him only shalt thou serve. Get thee hence, Satan, deceive me not. For God said unto me, Thou art after the similitude of mine only begotten Son. As soon as Moses realized that he was a son of God and what that means, he knew that he no longer needed to listen to the temptations of the devil and would be blessed of the Lord as a result of following him instead of the adversary. When we learn who we are as human beings, of who and where we come from, this could be our relationships as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. This could be our relationships to past ancestors, etc. Our self-worth increases when we learn where we come from and who we are. When we learn that we are children of God, our worth changes. When we learn of the worth of those around us too, our perceptions of them will change and we will want to serve them because of the worth and potential we see in them. In learning about my relation to Lute Olson, it's cool to think I'm related to a Hall of Fame basketball coach, someone who went to five Final Fours and won a national championship, someone who coached great players who had successful NBA careers, 
players like Steve Kerr, Sean Elliott, Damon Stoudemire, Mike Bibby, Jason Terry, Richard Jefferson, and others. What's even cooler, though, is to learn that I'm related to a man of great character, someone who made an impact on the lives of those he coached. Countless players share what he meant to them as human beings. I think, you know, the, the best coaches that, that I had, the ones who really made an impact on me, Lou Olson, Phil Jackson, Greg Popovich, they had this wonderful balance um, that I think is important for leaders in any field. And it's, it's a balance of, on the one hand, that person is in charge. You know, you're, you're the leader, you're in charge. You, you got to know your stuff. You've got to lay out a vision and you've got to get people to see that vision. But on the other hand, you've got to be compassionate. You've got to, to get to know the people who are uh, playing for you or learning from you. They need to know that you care about them. You can't be the, you know, the old school, my way or the highway these days, I don't think. I, I think you've got to get to know people on a personal level. You've got to develop a relationship. And I mentioned Phil Jackson, Popovich, Coach Olson. They all had that balance. You were a little bit afraid of them. You know, they were a little intimidating, but you had so much respect for them because of their knowledge. And then you, you gravitated towards them because they, they cared about you. They, they genuinely cared about your well-being. And I think that's a really important balance for, for anybody in a leadership position. Had I known as a youngster that my grandpa's first cousin is Lute Olson, would my belief in myself as a player have increased? Would I have had the confidence to become a better player? I guess I'll never know. Learning of my relation to him now, though, it makes me want to find out if there is more that I can do with my life. As a teacher, I've never gotten involved with coaching, but I've always wondered what it would be like. I'm not saying I want to be a high school coach or anything of that nature, but even just to work with kids and help instill confidence and develop a love for the game of basketball, like Tim Hoffensberger did long ago with me during the ball handling club, would be great. I'm currently reading a few books about coaching, including one by Pete Newell, who it so happened introduced Lute Olson as he was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. I like to think that my reading of this book is Lute's way of passing down his knowledge of the game to an ancestor similar to how Jorel built a fortress of knowledge for his son Kal-El or Clark Kent as a way to teach him to become Superman. In general though, I just want to be a great human being like Lute Olsen was. <laughs>